Welcome to Islam for Christians. This is episode 115, Islamic History 624, Medina Between the Battles. The next battle was coming. Something big was coming. Everyone in Medina knew this. They had to know. Badr was an improbable and a stunning victory. But in the bigger picture, there was so much more to do if they were really going to live securely in Medina as Muslims. And on the other side, Mecca didn't have a whole lot of choice in this matter either. They pretty much had to attack at some point. Because Muhammad was now allied with tribes to the west of Medina that lived closer to the Red Sea. And you just could not sneak a caravan past that. So Mecca could either stop sending caravans north, they could make peace with Muhammad, or they could try to destroy him. And everyone knew what the final answer would be. It would be, they're going to try and destroy him. So in the meantime, back in Medina, the Muslims, they're happy. Of course, it was a great victory at Badr, but they were cautiously happy. At least uh, the more worrisome and thinking of the Muslim population would have been. It would have been uh, like the situation where Winston Churchill said his very famous line. Uh, it was about three years into World War II, and he said, Now this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end. But it is, perhaps the end of the beginning. So, just to run with that metaphor a little bit, the Muslims actually were in a very similar place in their war against the Quraysh of Mecca, as the British had been against the Nazis at that point in history. They had a victory, an actual victory, not a successful raid or some kind of moral victory, an actual, obvious victory on the battlefield at Badr, just as Churchill's army had when he had spoken those famous words. But there would need to be many more victories to come, obviously. And Churchill knew that. So did Muhammad. One major difference between the two situations, though, is that Muhammad unlike Churchill and the Allies, Muhammad and the Muslims, they were still playing defense. They were not offense. They were pretty much just on defense. So the next battle would not be in Mecca. It would be much closer to home. And why were they on defense? Not because they wouldn't go on offense if they didn't have the, uh, the option. I mean, they kind of did at Badr in a way, but in the larger picture... Muhammad simply did not have the numbers to go on offense, especially that far away from home. They would have to wait for the Meccans to come this time, and then do their best with whatever situation presented itself. And they had some options. They could try to withstand a siege, um, you know, depending on how good and how big this army was. Or, especially given their success at Badr, they could actually leave the city and try to stand against the coming army in an open battlefield. That battle would come, 
And that battle would be known as the Battle of Uhud around March 625. That's Uhud, U-H-U-D. But in the meantime, it's still 624. And even without major fighting, the period between Badr and Uhud was still pretty eventful. Now, the first step in preparing a defense of the city was to make sure the whole of Medina could be counted on during a battle. And especially, you wanted to make sure that none of your so-called friends would turn to enemies at a terrible time and ally with the Meccan army when it came. And there was one particular tribe to the south whose loyalty was questionable, and things grew worse when a simple fight turned into a blood feud. And when this tribe refused to let Muhammad mediate, you know, as he was supposed to, it then turned into a full-blown insurrection to the south of the city. And this was quickly put down, and the entire Jewish tribe of Bani Kenuka ended up being exiled. So, Muhammad lost some potential soldiers, but at a strategic level, or a tactical level, it was a plus for Muhammad's military situation because that was one internal enemy and one in a very strategic position that was taken off the table before the battle even happened. Also, apparently, those people were very skilled metal workers. So when these people were exiled, the Muslims basically inherited a weapons factory when they seized the land. That was the good news, but obviously, it's not all good news because they didn't have the same skilled workers to go with all that equipment that they had. Also, in this time, there were several skirmishes with the Quraysh. Now, the Meccan Quraysh had their western routes closed, and they could try to sneak caravans through to the east, but this wasn't terribly effective. It would have been kind of like the Allies trying to get uh, transports and merchant ships through the submarines you know, in early World War II. It was actually kind of similar. Now, you couldn't count on getting a lucrative caravan through there with any certainty. But what Mecca could do was use some of their allies they still had to the east of Medina. And these parties, these allies, they raided and harassed the outskirts of Medina. But Muhammad tended to get the best of those raids during this period because he had a good communication network and he was able to disperse most of the raids before they even began. And one powerful leader of those eastern tribes even converted to Islam. And this was just one more example of the slow, painful, from the Meccan perspective, the slow battle of attrition that the Arab pagans were on the losing end of. The ratchet only went one way. Pagans became Muslims, but no Muslims became pagans. So, little by little, Muhammad was shoring up his periphery, his flanks, and not just militarily. There was also the propaganda realm, something that is always overlooked, but always extremely important. Now, propaganda is usually seen as a modern thing, and it is not. Propaganda 
is also viewed as a tool exclusive to authoritarian regimes and wicked people. It is not. It's just another tool in the armory, in the war chest. If your propaganda is terrible, your army will be fighting with a significant handicap. Even today, my country, the United States, is one of the greatest propaganda forces in the history of the world, and certainly the premier player on the world stage right now in the realm of propaganda. We are very good at it, and we understand its importance, its utility, its danger. And so did Muhammad. And what was the propaganda realm of the time? Now, in our time, it's the internet and social media. In World War II, it was radio and films and pamphlets. In Arabia, in Muhammad's time, it was poetry. You may remember the unfortunate prisoners who were killed after Badr. It was because they were poets, propagandists, and they understood the threat that these people represented. Well, in Medina, there was a poet named Kab ibn al-Ashraf. He was a high-ranking member of the Banu Nadir clan. Remember that name, Banu Nadir, N-A-D-I-R. After the Battle of Uhud, which is coming up, the Banu Nadir will play an interesting role. Well, this guy, Kab, he was a talented Jewish leader and poet, and he wrote poems commemorating the dead of Badr on the Meccan side. So his poetry was being used to stir up the people, the non-Muslims of Medina, and encouraging them to turn on Muhammad and regain the honor that was lost when they basically agreed to let Muhammad rule over them. Now, a large part of what made this poet effective was not just its poetry. It's that what he was saying was actually pretty logical. So he wasn't just stirring up people out of nothing. He wasn't entirely wrong, which made him obviously much more dangerous. The element of truth in what he was writing is he's saying, hey, what quarrel do we, the non-Muslims of Medina, have with the Quraysh? Wasn't Muhammad putting them all in mortal danger on this religious crusade of his? So he actually had a pretty compelling message and a talented skill set to deliver it. So unsurprisingly, Muhammad and the Muslims would prefer that he cease to exist. Muhammad knew this was just as dangerous as having raiders on your periphery. Again, this big battle, everyone knows is coming. You need as many certainties as you can get. You really don't want to be stabbed in the back at the last second. This was the home front, the fifth column. And in war, in our time, as in their time, the usual rules just don't apply. And you can do things that would never work in peacetime. For example, my country still has some mind-bogglingly oppressive laws on the books, and not coincidentally, they were all created during a war. So 
even we, a country founded on freedom, even we just chuck out the Constitution when the bombs start flying. It doesn't mean anything anymore. Just like Abraham Lincoln suspended habeas corpus during the Civil War. There was the Espionage Act in World War I, the internment of Japanese Americans in World War II, the Patriot Act after 9-11. And that's still a thing. Because governments, obviously, do not like to relinquish power even when the bombs stop flying. And this is all over the place. Really, America is probably the most light-handed when it comes to these things. In other countries, it's way, way worse. As in, hey, it's wartime. Do what I say or my thugs will kill you. That's much more common. But it is just a war thing. This is a universal thing. Very few are immune to this phenomena. And you will start seeing this in the early Muslim community as we go on. Fear and war do not often combine for flattering moments. Muhammad certainly was not immune to any of this either. And this guy, this Jewish poet of the Banu Nadir, he clearly had Muhammad a bit spooked. And in some versions of the story, this guy was actively gathering soldiers for some kind of mutiny. Now, in other versions, he was killed just because of his propaganda. Now, which one is true? Who knows? It's impossible to decipher the motivations of all the people telling the story. Uh, this is a very common thing, and it's a cop-out, I know, but that's history. I don't know. If you're certain about history, it means you need to learn a little bit more about history. Okay, so the story goes. Some of Muhammad's followers had a plan to kill this poet, Cobb, but they were worried about telling Muhammad because the plan that they had involved very un-Islamic things, such as lying and deceit. But this is war. The rules are different. For Americans and Muslims and everyone who has ever lived, this has been the case, like I've been trying to say. So, Muhammad, understanding this, said, it's okay to lie. Deceit is permissible in war. So the plan is hatched and then executed. And the men, I think it was four or five men, they approach Kaab, telling him they want to defect. They, so they go off for a walk together, presumably to talk about their defection from the Muslim ranks. And when he's off, unprotected by himself, they kill him. So Kaab is dead. And unsurprisingly, the tribe did not like this, the Banu Nadir. Muslims or not, they thought this was way out of bounds, at least from their point of view. Muhammad claimed he had broken the constitution, talking about Kaab here, this Muhammad claimed that this poet had broken the constitution of Medina by offering support to the Quraysh, which is a pretty good claim. It's arguably true. Really, at what point is it incitement? <laughs> you know, there is there's really is some gray area here. Because from Muhammad's perspective, do you really wait for the Quraysh to come and for him and his supporters to join them in the fight? To join the Meccans, that is, and to really possibly stab them in the back? Do you wait for that before you move against him? Did he have enough to really decree? 
that Cobb was supporting the Meccans? Maybe, maybe not. You can really see both sides of this, and it kind of depends on whether you consider speech to be support. If indeed the, the theory about this just being about poetry, not that he was actually raising an army to act against the Muslims. Now, back to this idea of speech being support. Many in my time and place would not consider speech to be support, but I also live in a somewhat unique place where free speech is arguably our most sacred principle, or at least it was 10 years ago. Uh, particularly among the younger and the more left-wing now, free speech is looked at with suspicion as a tool for the powerful. Now, I'm not sure if that's a normal thing about young lefties or if it's just a college campus thing, but us older folks hope it's just an odd phase. <laughs> and uh, They'll go back to sort of what was almost for 200, basically for 200 years, the default American attitude that free speech is important. But it's not the bipartisan, ironclad American principle it once was. Anyway, I'm getting way off track here. This is about Muhammad. <laughs> Muhammad's attitude was a bit more ancient and more in line with that of the new left, as in speech is violence. Uh, and speaking against Muhammad, by that logic, is treasonous violence. And knowing that most in the clan actually felt the way Cobb did, you know, just because Cobb was dead didn't mean this animosity was going to go away. So Muhammad said this to the tribe, to the, not the tribe, to the clan, I'm sorry. So this is Muhammad speaking about Cobb. Uh, this is the translation of Martin Ling's. If he, referring to Cobb, if he had remained as others of like opinion remain, he would not have been killed by guile. But he did us injury and wrote poetry against us. And none of you shall do this, but he shall be put to the sword. Basically, Muhammad was saying, you don't have to like me, but you know, keep it to yourself. You keep it to yourself and you'll be fine. But if you criticize me in public, especially using poetry, <laughs> making it effective, it's a capital offense. And with that, militarily speaking, Muhammad had covered yet another flank, or at least he thought so. Overall, Muhammad was doing pretty well. He was adding allies and bringing in more people. Many of these. They required charity, though. <laughs> These Muslim converts didn't tend to be rich people, and they were starting to build up in Medina. Many of them, they left their homes with nothing, and they were entirely reliant on the good nature of the people of their new community, which, being a Muslim community, was extremely dedicated to charity. So they really had to practice what they preached. Now, most of these people... They were simply sleeping outside the mosque. There was no place for them. And Muslims were encouraged to stretch their meals out, so to speak. As in, you know, just eat half of what you were going to eat and give the rest to somebody else. 
they were stretching out their meals, trying to stretch out their food supply to take what would normally feed 500 and feed 1,000 with it. And really, simply out of faith, which is actually pretty wonderful, to provide for their new brothers in faith. This was not an optional thing. And then there was also Muhammad's family situation, which would change considerably between Badr and Uhud. Now, as I've talked about before, Muhammad lost an appalling amount of his own children. And in this period, it would be his daughter, Rukeya. She was in her 20s, and she died from an unknown illness. And she died pretty much at the t almost the moment the Muslims won the Battle of Badr. She had been married to Uthman. If you recognize that name, he would later be the third caliph. So what killed her? No way to know, really. It's just a reality of the ancient world. So Muhammad lost a daughter during this period, and he also added two more wives. This would take his total to four, uh, which would, later on, be the maximum allowable by Islamic law. Muhammad's third wife, uh, joining Sauda and Aisha, would be Hafsa bint Umar. Now, when you hear bint, that just means daughter of, just like Ibn means son of. Hafsa bint Umar was, as the name would suggest, the daughter of Umar, which was important. This meant that Muhammad was now married to the daughters of both Abu Bakr and Umar, who would be, later on, caliphs number one and caliph number two. But this wasn't just to cement a bond with Umar. Hafsa was a widow. Her husband had been killed at Badr. And you'll see this as a recurring pattern. Muhammad's wives, uh, pretty much everyone besides Aisha, they were widowed or divorced before they became Muhammad's wife. And then wife number four, Zainab bint Huzema. Now, this Zainab is not to be confused with another Zainab that Muhammad would later marry, that would be Zainab bint Josh. We're talking about Zainab number one. Now, Zainab number two will be a very, very interesting story when we get to it, but we're not there yet. This is Zainab number one. She was also a widow of Badr. Zainab wasn't connected, but she was known to be a very good person. I connected, I mean like socially connected, you know, of high social or economic status. But she was known as a very good person and extremely generous and mindful of the poor. Muhammad likely married her as an act of charity, actually. Although she was still quite young, just as Hafsa was. But she would only be Muhammad's wife for a few months, and uh, she fell ill and died in early 625. Again, of what? I mean, who knows? It's a harsh world, the ancient world. And there would be another huge marriage as well. Actually, one way larger than any of Muhammad's marriages at this time. This was when Ali married Fatima. Now, Ali, I hope you know. His uh, Muhammad's cousin, son-in-law, great warrior, clear Muslim leader. 
and Fatima, it's Muhammad's daughter. Now, Ali and Fatima, they were close in age, although Ali was a bit reluctant to go through with this marriage because he was young, and in his mind, he had almost nothing to offer compared to the two other prominent Muslim men who had asked to marry Fatima, that being Abu Bakr and Umar. Now, either one would have made sense. Umar's daughter had just married Muhammad, and Aisha, Muhammad's extremely young second wife, was the daughter of Abu Bakr. Now, the choice of Ali must have been infuriating to both of them, particularly to Abu Bakr. I mean, he gave his young daughter in marriage to an old man. Muhammad couldn't return the favor, but he chose Ali, later saying that God had made the choice. And the whole notion of God choosing this marriage would later become extremely important uh, in what would become Shia Islam. And these two would be a new power couple, sort of the Mary and Joseph of Islam, uh, certainly of Shia Islam. Now, Shiism, it wouldn't arrive for a few more centuries, but soon Fatima would give birth to Hassan who would be the second in a long line of imams of the Shia faith. So this inter-battle period was not just people resting and preparing for war. It was a time of great change. We have Muhammad. His family is in flux. There's great change all around him. And the community, it was also in flux. They had new members along with a new uncertain political <laughs> position on the Arabian Peninsula, political military position. And they knew the attack was coming. One could say it was like the French during the phony war, standing behind the Maginot Line. Now, unfortunately for the Muslims, they had no such fortifications. Not that it really did the French much good anyway. But the Muslims were stationary in the same way the French were mainly because they had to defend a city. This wasn't going to be like Badr. They didn't have that kind of flexibility, that level of choice, that hope that their opponents were going to be disorganized and stupid. This would be a home battle, and a battle for their home. And soon, 3,000 well-armed troops would be heading toward Medina. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash 
Islam for Christians.